by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, that's quite an in-your-face abrupt statement. James is saying, really, in practical words, if you don't use your faith, for all practical purposes, pretty worthless. If you don't apply what you know, you might as well not know it at all. If you're not going to do anything with your faith, you might as well not believe in the first place. Now, I can see a few shocked faces out there. This is shocking stuff, but there is no practical use being a Christian if you're not going to do anything with your faith. Because on this side of eternity, faith that's not applied, according to James, is dead. It's useless. It's worthless. It won't do you one single bit of good. In fact, James actually pushes this slightly further. He goes, that kind of faith that's all right here, all all in your head, but you don't apply it, it won't do anything for your marriage. won't do anything for your parenting. won't do anything for your relationships with others. It, It won't do a single thing for your finances, your reputation, your morality. That kind of faith won't do anything for you. Because if it's going to have any impact on your life whatsoever, this side of eternity, faith must be applied as prescribed. And so that's the name of the series we're going to be doing over this next term. Faith, use as prescribed. And so we closed last time by saying that James has written us this phenomenally, incredibly practical book which pretty much sets out how to do our faith. If you want to know what Christianity is supposed to look like, then the book of James is the book for you. What does faith look like in the real world? James provides us with the answers. And he begins this book in chapter 1, conventionally, by tackling one of the toughest topics that we face in life. Here's what he says. He says, if you're going to have the kind of faith that makes a difference in your day-to-day living. In other words, you're going to do more than simply go to a church meeting once a week on a Sunday. You're going to do more than sing the songs and believe what everyone else seems to believe. But Monday through Saturday, you're actually going to do this stuff. He says, if that's what you want to do, the first thing you need to understand, here's what we're going to be talking about this afternoon. If your faith is going to be a living, active faith, then you need to understand that God is going to allow negative things to come into your life in order to use those things to build your faith muscle. I want you to think about it. If you want to build muscle, what do you do? Here's what you do. Some of you look like you need to hear this advice. Here's what you need to do. Okay, very practical this morning or this afternoon. What you need to do if you want to build muscle, you need to exhaust the muscle, work it really hard, and then you rest it. And then you work it again really hard, and then you rest it. And then you exhaust it all over again, and then you rest it. Well, that's how I got the physique you see standing in front of you. That's my secret. And in the same way, James says, that's what your faith is like. And God is so interested in you having strong, persevering faith that he's going to allow, and in some instances, actually cause things in your life in order to stretch your faith, so that when all said and done, you will have an active, strong, healthy faith. If you've got your Bible with you, maybe you can turn with me to James chapter 1. It's James 1 we're going to be looking at for the rest of our time today. James will say this to us in this passage. If you're ready to move beyond 
just attending meetings to actually applying your faith in your day-to-day life. So it impacts on your relationships and on your finances and on your view of yourself and on your work and every other arena of your life. And James would say, I've actually got some ideas for you. And he starts by introducing the whole topic of going through different trials. Here's what he says in verse 1. James, just to explain... James is actually writing this letter. And back then they did something that was actually quite a sensible idea. Nowadays, when we write a letter, we tend to put our name at the bottom of the letter. But what everyone does, they get a letter and they look straight down to the bottom to see who wrote it. Well, back then they were very sensible and they actually put the name of the sender right there at the top of the letter. So James, he's the person sending it. James, a servant of God, he's describing himself here. James, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations greetings. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Let's just pause there. Now, if we didn't know who was writing this, I think a lot of us probably, if we're being honest, would be tempted just to slam the Bible shut at that point and say, this is clearly written by an absolute lunatic. I mean, these words, joy and trials... They're two words that don't naturally go together. However, if you understand who's writing this, you've got to take it seriously. Because James was none other than the half-brother of Jesus. Just think about it. James had to cope with having none other than God himself as his brother as he was growing up. I think of sibling rivalry, James was always going to come off worst. I mean, uh, he was always in his brother's shadow. He, he'd struggled past with seeing his brother get all the attention. Maybe secretly, he'd resented it. But then, he'd gone through the pain of watching as the crowds turned on Jesus, his brother. He, he'd seen Jesus, his brother, he, he endured the most unjust court case in the history of the world, culminating in him suffering the most barbaric death ever devised. James was a man very much acquainted with trials. And he was writing to a whole bunch of people who themselves were experiencing a whole load of trials. These were Jews who had become Christians. That they'd woken up to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That the penny had dropped in their minds that through his death and resurrection, there's now not only forgiveness for sin, but also the opportunity for us to relate to God as our Father on a day-to-day basis. And they are full of it. So they excitedly rush to the synagogue to tell all their friends the good news, what's happened to them. And they find that suddenly they're outcasts. They're not welcome amongst their friends. And then persecution breaks out in that part of the world, and they end up being scattered into all these different countries. Many of them ended up having to leave their homes. Whole families were divided. And so, of course, many of them ended up asking the questions that many of us ask when the bottom falls out of our worlds. God, where are you? I thought you were a good God. And I've prayed about this every day and it seems like you've ignored my prayers. God, what's going on here? You see, the culture that they had grown up with taught them to think, if good things are happening to you, then God is really pleased with you. But if bad things are happening in your life, then you've fallen out of favour with God in some way. So here's 
this bunch of relatively new believers who are facing a whole load of unexpected problems. And they're drawing the conclusion that there must therefore be something wrong with them. Or else, there's something wrong with God. And James sees all of this going on and he goes, no, 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 no. You have got it all wrong. When you encounter trials of many kinds, you need to consider it a time of real joy. To which they were as baffled as we are when we hear those words. In fact, you might be sitting there today and, and you've heard these verses before. You know them very well, very familiar with them. And there's something in you, like there's something in me that says, yep, yeah, I know all of that, but you need to hear my story. Now, I know it says many kinds of trials, but I bet I get an exception. I, I bet if James was to hear my circumstances, if James was to hear my story, he'd say, no, no, in your case, forget all about joy. I mean, looking at what you're going through, you've got no reason for joy whatsoever. Forget about joy. I made a mistake there. I made it too broad. You are the exception. In fact, you can sit over there in that corner with all those other people who are also exceptions to this rule. That is not what he's saying. James says, when you and I, as Christians, face trials, we're to have joy. All of us are to have joy in the midst of them. And then helpfully, he goes on to explain why. And in doing so, he defines for us what a trial is from the perspective of God. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, my sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith... And then he goes on to say something else, which we'll look at in a few moments. But I want us just to notice that little phrase, the testing of your faith... It defines for us what a trial is from God's perspective. Do you know how God views the trials that you go through in life? He views them as a testing of your faith. You say, God, it feels like my whole world is falling apart. And God says, no, it's not. I'm just testing your faith here. But look what's happening to me. And God goes, yep, I know. It's a test of your faith. But I don't like this. And God says, I know. But that's what's necessary for your faith to be tested. Don't you to miss this. It's so important. As a believer, whenever there is a tragedy or a disaster or things don't go according to plan in our lives, whether it's a family thing or a work thing or a health thing or a relationship thing, whatever it is, whenever trials enter our experience... James says here that from God's perspective, it's not a victory for the devil and you have to somehow pray the devil down. It's not that necessarily you've fallen out of favour with God. It's not necessarily because of some sin you've committed. In most cases, the trials that we face are a test of our faith. Now perhaps you're thinking, well, that's all well and good, but why is it a test of my faith? In what way does it test my faith? If you really think about it, I think we kind of know the answer already. You see, when bad things happen to those of us who are Christians, what's one of the first things we do? God, where are you? It's like we focus on God. It's as though for a split second at least, he's got our undivided attention. For some of us, 
we ask for his help. And there's something in us that, that reaches out to God at those times and says, God, you're going to do something about this, aren't you? Surely you can't let me go through this, can you? Uh, you're not going to let it get any worse, are you? I- I'm going to get better, I'm going to get well, aren't I? I mean, God, help! But if truth be told, for a lot of us, what we do is, we start complaining. God, can you see what's happening to me here? God, you knew I was going to get that phone call. God, you knew that ash cloud was coming. God, you knew that deal was going to collapse at the last minute. God, you knew that accident was about to happen. God, you knew. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you prepare me? And suddenly, in the midst of our trials... Our faith and our confidence that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do, our faith and our confidence in God starts being stretched. It's like there's this tension. Now here's the interesting thing. In my relatively wrinkle-free life that I try to maintain at all costs, just like most of you do, in my wrinkle-free life where I wish for everyone to be healthy and wealthy and happy and life to be smooth and like a dream, a few occasions when it's actually like that, it doesn't do a whole lot for my face. I mean, it's comfortable, very pleasant, encouraging, I like it. But it doesn't really test my faith. I mean, you don't tend to get up in the morning when the sun's shining and everything's going swimmingly well and get straight on your knees and plead with God, God, please help me maintain my faith in you today. Now, when everything's going well, when everything's going to plan, we we don't spend a whole lot of time praying, God, come through for me. Please, would you come through? Would you break through in this situation? Help me, give me the strength to get through all of this. We pretty much ignore God when everything's going well. But James says, when the bottom falls out of your world, maybe when you get that email or that phone call, when you get that unexpected bill, when redundancies are looming again, and suddenly there's this interaction between you and God. Suddenly there's a bit of tension. Suddenly those faith muscles are being stretched in some way, often to the point of exhaustion. And James says, look, if you're going to have a living, active faith, if you're going to become someone who does something about it and doesn't just show up on a Sunday and look like a Christian, if it's going to impact your life Monday through Saturday, he says, you've got to begin your journey by viewing trials as a test of your faith. And then he goes on and gives us some more information. He explains in verse 3, because... You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. In other words, the end result, the end goal of all of this is that you persevere. What God wants to develop in you and in me is enduring, persevering faith. That when things get worse and worse and worse, he can still count on us to say, no, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. It says less and less and less to put our confidence in. We'd we'd still say, I still believe and believe and believe and believe. As all the things that I used to trust in are falling around me, that God would find in us the kind of persevering, enduring faith that would say, even though things aren't as I would want them to be, 
Even though on the surface it would appear that you have abandoned me right now, still I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. He says, that's how a person with active living faith responds to trials. That's how they respond when it's as though the bottom has fallen right out of their world. And then he goes on. He says in verse 4, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, spiritual maturity really isn't so much about what you know in your head. It's about how enduring your faith is. You know, God's ultimate goal for your life is that you would be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And he defines that very simply here. He says it's not about knowing everything necessarily. It's not about being a great preacher or worship leader or musician or evangelist or whatever. He says spiritual maturity is found in your ability to endure and persevere in your faith and your faithfulness when there's nothing to hang your faith and faithfulness on except for the character and the person of God. He says, when a person is no longer depending on anything apart from their faith in who God is, he says, that person is complete. They're lacking in nothing. And ultimately, that is where our Heavenly Father wants to take all of us. So basically, this is his message. And if you remember nothing from this message apart from this, then okay, but remember this. Adversity isn't a signal that God is absent. When you go through times of trial and difficulty, problems, adversity, it isn't a signal that God is absent. Adversity is a sign that God is active. Adversity isn't all about the absence of God. God, where are you? Adversity, James says is about the activity of God. And that's why you can take joy. Because when the bottom falls out of your world, the good news is, God is at work. To which you say, well, I wish he wouldn't work that way. I wish he'd go and work on someone else. You know, I wish he'd just leave me alone. But James says, no, if you really get this, then you can find joy even in the hardest circumstances. Because when you face trials, it doesn't mean God has deserted you. He is right there with you, by your side, looking for you to trust in him, rather than in all those other things that we depend on as a substitute for him. Our intellect, our energy, our gifts, our money, our family, our friends. Why does he do this? Why doesn't God just leave us alone? Why can't he just make my life turn out how I want my life to be? I mean, why all this tension? Why all this stress? Why all this pressure? But here's how the book of James puts it later on. James kind of says this. The greatest compliment that can be paid a person is when we maintain faith in them when there's nothing to put our faith in other than their character. The greatest compliment that can be paid a person 
It's when we maintain faith in them when there's nothing to put our faith in other than their character. And in the same way with God, we express our love and our worship in its purest form when we say to God, look, in spite of what it seems like, in spite of the way it appears you've treated me, I will believe in you. I will maintain my confidence and my faith in you because of who you are and because of what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now look, I wouldn't naturally choose to get up here and share this message with you if it wasn't so clearly, so obviously here in the Bible. I'm being honest, this isn't my favourite part. But the truth is, this is what honours God. And this is where he wants to take each of us. Maybe you're still struggling with this, still trying to get your head around it. doesn't quite seem right. If you are still struggling with this, maybe this will help you get what James is getting at. And it's a flawed example, but it might help you a bit. This week, Helen and I celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary. Now, I know we don't look old enough, but we got married very young. But we've been married 14 years now. And as I look back over our married life together, I'd have to say that the times when Helen's love for me has shone through the most bright have been when I've been the hardest person to love. It's like the times when, when, when she proves she loves me the most are the times when I am most unlovable. And again, some of you will be thinking, well, I just seem so very lovable. But I do have my moments, I have to admit. Now, when I've created circumstances in our home that make it hard for her to love me, but through all of those times, she maintains her love and faithfulness to me. Those are the times I look back on our marriage and go, wow, what kind of love's that? And in the same way, or a similar way, God is most honoured by us when we maintain faithfulness, even when there's nothing for us to hang our faithfulness on other than the person of who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. And that's what he wants from all of us. He, he wants us to love him for who he is and what he's done for us in Christ rather than love him for who we want him to be and what he's done for us lately. Now look, let's be real. A lot of the time, my love for God does depend on what he's done for me lately. I mean, it's much easier, isn't it, to, to pitch up on a Sunday, come in and worship enthusiastically when I've had a really good week. And my guess is, others are similar. It's not just me. I don't think I'm alone in this. But here's what James says to us. Let me tell you God's agenda for your life. As you go through life, every once in a while, God is going to come along and just knock away one of those props that you've been leaning on, depending on, and it's going to stretch your faith. And you're going to persevere through it, and you're going to come through the other side stronger and more faithful, and then time is going to go by a little more, and God's going to come along again and just knock away another one of those props, one of those, I love God because things. It's like one of the becauses is going to get taken away. I don't know, I love God because he's always provided and whoops, now things are financially incredibly tight and I'm not sure how we're going to get through all of this. He's going to stretch your faith. He's going to build some perseverance. He's going to work a bit of endurance into you. 
And as a result, your faith is going to get perfected. I want to read you an extract from C.S. Lewis, not one of the Narnia tales. It's a slightly harder read, The Problem of Pain. Uh, the most inspiring cover here. Got a slightly more palatable one there. But what he says here, it, I, I think it's just great. It's, it's timeless stuff. Some of, the, some of the vocabulary is a little old, but I think we've got the maturity to work through that. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. My own experience is something like this. I'm progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow, or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday, or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease, or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction, sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first, I'm overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps, by God's grace, I succeed. And for a day or two, I do become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. I'm even anxious, God forgive me, to to banish from my mind the only thing that supported me under the threat because it's now associated with the misery of those few days. Thus, the terrible necessity of tribulation is only too clear. God has had me for about 48 hours and then only by dint of taking everything else away from me. Let him but sheathe that sword for a moment, and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness, if not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until God either sees us remade or sees that our remaking is now hopeless. It's not powerful. It's powerful. James says, do you want to be the real deal? Do you want to be something much more than just a Sunday Christian? Do you want to be conformed into the likeness of Christ? If you do, then you need to start viewing adversity through a different set of lenses. You need to view adversity as the tool that God is going to use to bring you to the point where your faith rests on the nature and the person of God and not on all the blessings of God, not on all the other things that God has done for you. That's the essence of Christ-likeness. Let me ask you a question. What do you think kept Jesus on the cross? What do you think kept him on the cross? Was there some personal benefit or enjoyment for him in that moment? No. There were two things that kept Jesus on the cross. Number one, 
I love the Father and I trust him. Number two, I love the people for whom I was sent. And that's it. I'm not getting anything else out of this right now. I suggest that's what it means to be Christ-like. That's where God wants to take you. The challenge is, am I willing? Am I willing to view adversity and trials in this way? Am, Am I willing to view them as a test of my faith with the end goal of developing endurance, which ultimately brings more glory and more praise to my Heavenly Father? And so through all the trials, I'm going to consider them as pure joy. Am I willing to view it that way? Every way you look at it, that is challenging. It's incredibly challenging. Fortunately, though, James goes on and very helpfully gives us a bit more insight into what we should do when we're in the middle of all these trials. Because that's always the question, isn't it? How do I actually do this in practice? I mean, it sounds great in theory on a Sunday morning. Yeah, very challenging. And yeah, I'd like to do that. How do we do it? How do we live this way? This is what James says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, remember the whole context here is going through times of trial and suffering. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. He says, right in the middle of all of this, all these problems, all these disasters, the bottom falling out of your world, in the middle of all of this, what you need to do is ask for wisdom. How do you know what I ask for when I'm in the middle of some kind of trial? I tend to ask for a get-out. I tend to ask for relief from it all. I don't want wisdom, I want out. Yeah, God, teach me whatever you want to teach me, but get it over and done with as quickly as possible so I can get back to how things were before. James goes, no, that's not how it works. Because trials are a tool that God uses to develop perseverance. So right there, when you're in the middle of the trial, he says, here's what God would have you do. You ask for wisdom. Specifically, you say, God, help me to see this the way that you see this. That's what wisdom is. It is seeing everything from the perspective of God. Right right there in the middle of all the trials, we're to pray, God, yeah, I want out. If I'm being honest, I hate this right now. And yes, I don't fully understand why on earth you're choosing to put me through this. But God, please at least in your grace... Grant me the wisdom I need to see all of this as you see it so that I can respond appropriately. So I can respond in the light of how things truly are rather than how I'm tempted to interpret them. Because God, if I'm honest, I'm tempted to interpret them as meaning that you've fallen off the throne, that you've fallen asleep at the wheel, that you don't love me, that you aren't paying any attention to what I'm going through. God, would you please open the eyes of my heart so that I can see this the way that you see it, so I can respond the way I should. You know what the Bible promises? This is so powerful. The Bible promises that if you have the faith and the confidence right there in the middle of the trials and all pressure to say, God, grant me wisdom, then God will answer that prayer. You don't have to be afraid to ask God any question you want from the standpoint of faith. From the standpoint of, God, 
I'm not doubting you. I just need a little more information from you. God, I'm not abandoning you. I, I just need some input from you right now. And James says, in that moment, right there in the midst of the trial, God will answer that prayer. He'll, he'll give you the wisdom you need so, so you can maintain the faith and the faithfulness necessary for you to grow in perseverance and endurance. But James doesn't leave it there. He adds a bit more. And, and to be fair, we need to just look at this well. He says in verse 6, But when he asks, this person asks, we ask for wisdom. When he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. What's that all about? I think what James is talking about here is, is the kind of person who does this. And I think probably we're all guilty of doing this from time to time. We, we think God is great when things are going very well in our lives. When things are bad, we start to wonder whether there is a God. It's like suddenly, Christ dying on the cross for me isn't enough anymore. And suddenly, knowing that I have eternity in heaven guaranteed to me, that isn't quite enough either. I think what James is saying in this passage is this, that that in the middle of our trials... When we go to God and ask for wisdom and insight, we're to go to him from the vantage point of, God, I still trust you. God, I do still believe in you. God, this isn't a question of, if you don't, I won't. This isn't about what I'm going to do if you don't answer. God, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to try and bargain with you. I'm not going to commit to be a missionary in some far-off country if you just do this one thing I ask. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just saying, God, I trust you. But I need some help from you right now. Would you please open the eyes of my heart to see more clearly in all of this? And James says, God will honour that. He will honour that. There are a couple of other things I just want to draw out of this passage. But before we look at those, I want to pray right now for anyone who feels like they're in the midst of a trial and you need some wisdom from God. Because this is very practical. It says here, if, if we ask for wisdom in the midst of those trials, God will give it to us. And so before we move on and just very quickly look at these two other things, I want to give an opportunity for God to come and do that for us right here, right now. So can we just close our eyes? And if you know for sure you need some wisdom from God, you know it's just tough and you're, you're trying to persevere through it. But if you could get some insight from God, it would really help you right now. I'm going to ask you just to kind of put your hands out in front of you, just as a, a kind of sign to God. God, here, here I am, I'm open to receive from you. you. Just do that. Hold your hands out in front of you, and I'd love to pray for you. Heavenly Father, you are such a good Father. You don't promise us one thing and then give us the complete opposite. You never lie. You're always true to your word. God, we we bring this promise to you right now that if we're facing difficulty, we're in the midst of a trial, 
we can reach out to you and ask for wisdom and you will give it. I want to pray for each person now reaching out to you, needing help in the midst of a trial. You come to them right now. It's going to look different for each person here, but would you give them the wisdom they need? Father, where there are people who have just taken their eye off you and got distracted by the magnitude of the problem, I want to ask you that even now you bring greater revelation to them of your power and your authority is far bigger than the problem Father I want to pray for, for those who feels like there's no end to all of this no light at the end of the tunnel I want to pray you, you give some insight today where you're taking people, where you're taking us where all of this is leading Father, I want to pray for those who are hopeless that you would give them hope right now. Father, I pray just for some of those inexplicable things. Some of the things are almost it's impossible to find an answer for and, and we feel the victim to it all. God, I pray that you would give us the, give us the wisdom, that the grace we need keep going, not to lose heart, to persevere and, and come through stronger for it. Holy Spirit, I pray for release of power now into our lives, where we're flagging, where we're finding it hard. Do you strengthen us? Do you help us to, to view things from your perspective, Father? That's wisdom. Help us to do it. Let me tell you why I think all the things I've been looking at really are true. Why, why all of this actually does work. Maybe some of the more spiritual members of the congregation here are thinking, well, if it's in the Bible, isn't that enough? Well, yeah, that is enough when everything's going great in life. But when I face a trial, I'm like everyone else. Just because I stand in front of you most weeks and I preach doesn't mean I'm like some kind of super faith man or something like that. I, I have the same worries and fears and concerns and anxieties as everyone else. And So I just want to tell you why I really believe this. Apart from the fact, obviously, it's in Scripture and so it's true. Is why I really believe this. As a leader in the church, I've seen dozens, possibly even hundreds, but don't exaggerate, dozens and dozens of people face and dozens and dozens and dozens face all kinds of trials from health to money issues to loved ones dying suddenly you name it I've seen it and in those experiences I've observed two kinds of people on the one hand I've seen men and women for whom trials have destroyed their faith maybe they've tried to argue with God maybe they've started bargaining with him Maybe they have promised him all kinds of stuff, if he'll answer. I've seen people walk away from God. I've seen people leave the church. I've seen people cut themselves off from other people who believe in God. I've seen all sorts of responses on that end of the spectrum. And then I've seen that handful of individuals who've been able to see trials as coming from the hand of God. And as I listen to those stories... 
And as I watched their faith in the most traumatic of circumstances, and, and time and time and time again, they, they come back to the place of stating that God's a good God, and if he loved me enough to send his son to die for me, then I could never question his goodness. Granted, I don't understand all the circumstances, but I will not question his goodness. So God, if you value persevering, enduring faith to the point you're willing to allow, and in some cases cause trials in the lives of your believers, people you love, to bring us to the place where we value you for who you really are, not who we'd like you to be, then ultimately that's okay with me. I'm watching these men and women, sometimes children, coming through these sometimes horrendous circumstances with their faith not only intact but actually strengthened, and on the other side of the whole process, more committed to Jesus than they were before. As I read these words in James... I can't help but think of their example. And I've got to admit that what James says here is true. It really does work in people's lives. I'll tell you, when I'm around people who live with that attitude, who live this out in practice, time and time again, I am humbled by them. I usually walk away with this dilemma of, I'm really glad I met you, but I don't know what I would do if I found myself in your circumstances. That's why these verses are so bothering to us. That's why they're so scary and frightening, because we don't know how we'd cope if we went through some of the trials that we see other people around us going through. Here's what I know. If you've got the desire, if you've got the courage if you've got the commitment to be a follower of Jesus who not only knows in their heads but does, a follower of Jesus who lives out their faith, and if you can begin to view the trials of life through the lens that God hasn't abandoned you but he's active and wants to use even those extreme circumstances to build your faith to the place where you have enduring, persevering faith. James says, if you can begin to see it that way, then here's the promise. In the end, you will persevere. God will receive greater glory. And you will know pure joy. Here's how James puts it. Right at the end of this passage, verse 12. And with this we're going to finish. James says, Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, who perseveres under trial. Because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Back in James' day, victorious athletes would be crowned with a laurel wreath at the end of the race. The athletes would endure all manner of pain and suffering as they strained towards the finish line. Why? So as to win the crown. And it's the same for us as we run into trials in life. James, the other New Testament writers, hold up the prospect of eternal reward as a huge motivator for us to persevere. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And like all those people running the marathon right now down in London, they do it 
to get a crown or a medal that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. If you're willing to use this life as an arena of endurance for Jesus' sake, there is a crown waiting for you when you die. There is eternal reward for those who persevere through trials in this life. I don't know exactly what it will be like, but from what I know of God, it will all be worth it. It will. You know, in this world, it might look to onlookers as though you're missing out on life. I might ask you, why do you bother? I mean, why don't you just throw in the towel? I mean, how can you stay faithful to God through all of that? I mean, I just couldn't go through what you're going through with such joy. The truth is, if you choose to endure for Christ and to live with your eyes fixed on the life which he will give you, he will crown you with dignity and with honour and with victory and with happiness and with reward to be enjoyed for all eternity. To again, quote Paul, it's like these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. These trials that we face that seem so huge and so heavy and so daunting, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. That's our motivation. That's what keeps us going. In two weeks' time, I'm going to come back and look at another passage where James fleshes out a bit more what it looks like to live out our faith in the real world. Here's a challenge I want to leave you with this time. Would you be willing to start looking at your trials through a different lens? And instead of asking for a way out straight away, it's okay to ask for a way out, I mean, it's only human, but to add to that prayer, God, would you give me wisdom to see what's happening to me the way that you see it? And would you allow me to develop and learn in the way that you want me to right in the midst of all of this? And when all's said and done, my ultimate desire is that my faith wouldn't have collapsed under all the pressure, but that I'd be stronger and more committed, more available to you, so that in the end you'd receive much more glory, much more honour, much more love through me. So ultimately, I've received this crown of life you've promised to those who love you to the end. Father, we lift up our eyes and look to you. You're the giver of life. We choose to lift our eyes to the very real trials we're facing and look to you. That's where real life is found. Father, we'd rather walk through this life with all its difficulties with you than without you. And forgive us for times when we've doubted. 
times when our heart hasn't been right times when we've been bitter or resentful but God help us from this point on to have a fuller, a wider, a broader understanding of what this life's all about Father I pray we wouldn't be weak, feeble, puny believers believers full of muscle full of strength it's been worked in us as we've persevered through the trials of life and God again I want to ask you for for those here today who are finding this hard it's just a struggle thank you they're here to hear this message your grace would you reach down to them encourage them motivate them to keep going for your glory Amen Okay, we're done there. Remember,